0: Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to John chapter 1 with me. John chapter 1. When you find that, you would stand with me as we honor the Lord with the reading of His Word. John chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1 together this morning. In the beginning was the Word. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that your word would go forth into our hearts, that we would hear, that we would receive it, and, Lord, that we would be changed because of it. Show us Christ more clearly this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. On the coast of the Black Sea in northern Turkey, about 1,500 years ago, an exiled bishop died. Now, most people don't remember him, but his name was Nestorius. And he became the bishop of Constantinople in 428 A.D., Shortly after he became the bishop in Constantinople, though, however, he he began to launch this campaign, this campaign aimed at the words Theotokos, which was being used by another bishop in Egypt, Alexandria, his name was Cyril, and he was using this word Theotokos to describe Jesus as being, or describe Mary as being the God-bearer, and so they began to have this argument that ended up becoming very heated about Jesus. How is Jesus both God and man? That was the question. How can Jesus be God and at the same time be a man? Now, what's strange, I guess, for us today is that's probably not the conversation we're going to have over lunch today, is it? We're not going to get into heated battles about how God Jesus is both God and man. Most of us, we just kind of assume that that's true we begin to think okay well i understand how all of that kind of works together well at this point in history this was something that was extremely important because they were arguing the truth that they were arguing they were trying to figure out what exactly is orthodoxy going to look like how is it that we're going to keep what is in the word of god there together in one corpus this doctrine of faith so that there isn't all kinds of varying viewpoints that are not within the boundaries of scripture how are we going to maintain orthodoxy and here they are in this dilemma now cyril called a meeting together in 431 in ephesus and he had been accusing the stories up until this point of being a heretic so he calls this meeting together accusing the stories of heresy because of his view of who Christ was and is. But the council convened just a few days early. Early enough so that Nestorius' supporters could not actually make it to the event. And Nestorius himself didn't attend, knowing what was going to happen. Nestorius was exiled from that point and sent to the Black Sea. Ten years later, on another coast of Asia Minor at Chalcedon, council of bishops meet once again to discuss this very doctrine, the doctrine of the Incarnation. And it was at this meeting that Leo, who was from Rome, came and is where he explained or he gave his explanation for the doctrine of the Incarnation. Now, that's where we get this concept that most of us say without knowing where it came from about who Jesus is and how Jesus is both God and man. That Jesus is both God and man. That he has two natures. One person. That's where we get it. Now in the end, Nestorius was in agreement with Leo. But he never returned. He never came back from exile. He was never reinstated. He died. In exile. But he never lost his faith. His faith was rooted in the truth of who Jesus Christ is. In fact, at the end of his life, this is what he said in his autobiography. He said, I have endured the torment of my life and all my fate in this world as the torment of the day. And lo, I have now come to the moment of death and daily I beseech God to release me whose eyes have seen the salvation of God, rejoice for me, O desert, my beloved and my provider and the home of my habitation and my mother, the land of my exile, who even after my death will guard my body unto the resurrection by the will of God. Does the way that you approach the gospel, does it look like that? the trust that you have in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you on the cross, would you pledge everything in your life to that truth? Your reputation, your family, your wealth, your comfort, everything in your life, would you pledge that to what you know to be true about who Jesus Christ is? Stories like this, like of Nestorius, should remind us of how important truth is. It's not just truth abstracted from life, but truth that deeply impacts who you are as a person and as a Christian. As we think about Christmas, we must not miss the reason that our God became flesh. We've sung about it. John is going to point us to the reason. Martin Luther once said that the mystery of the humanity of Christ that he sunk himself into our flesh is beyond all human understanding. So as we meet together, let us think deeply about why it is that God became flesh for us. We read verses 1 down to verse 1 down to verse 18. I want us to focus our attention this morning on verses 14 down to verse 18. So I'm going to go back and look at those really quickly and then we will begin looking at what they're talking about. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now to verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Now the mystery of this text that we're we're looking at in here in John chapter 1, the mystery of this text is best understood when we understand the Old Testament properly. You think back about the Old Testament you think back about the people of Israel. As the Israelites are wandering around through the desert, they experience a closeness with God that had not been experienced for thousands of years. No one had known God like they knew God. Among those, those dusty rocks and the smelly livestock, the people could actually see with their own eyes God's presence among them. The tribes... You remember back in the book of Exodus, the tribes were organized in such a way that each tribe could look from their from their uh, openings of their tent, they could look and see the center of the camp so that as they all surrounded the center of the camp, right in the center of the camp was Yahweh's tabernacle. So everybody knew why they were doing the things that they were doing, what was happening there in the center of the camp. There in the center of the camp was Yahweh's tabernacle. And and Moses had erected the tent, Yahweh's glory then descended upon it. Exodus chapter 40, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That sounds really wonderful, doesn't it? But it wasn't quite as restful as sometimes we begin to think. We think back about all of the the Bible stories that we hear. We begin to think of all of the flannel graphs that kind of outlined how things looked. Didn't look quite like that. Wasn't as restful being in the presence of God as one might think. The intensity of Yahweh's presence living among them was a scary thing. It was a fearful thing. There was, there was terror and dread that filled the community because Yahweh was not a tame God. He was a wild God. He did what he wanted to do. And he still does exactly what he wants to do. He was not like all of the other Middle Eastern gods. Gods that could be bribed. Gods that could be, uh, that could be wooed. That could be talked to. That could be uh, sweetly changed. Uh, their disposition. Based on what you sacrificed. Or based on what you gave to them. Puppets. Yahweh. He was different. The people didn't choose Yahweh. He chose them. He selected them out of all of the peoples of the world. He selected the nation of Israel to be his own possession. In fact, he says of them this. He says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were called into this covenant relationship with God. And if they broke the covenant, there would be judgment for them. But they couldn't control the Lord. They could not control the Lord by bribing him through sacrifice. He alone was the one who dictated how they were to worship, how they were to live their lives, what kind of practices they were to go about, how they were to obey him. He gave them a law that would shelter them from his holiness. So because Yahweh was perfectly holy and righteous, the people could not live around him without being sheltered from his perfection. you imagine that? Living every day, knowing that there is this wild, untamed deity living at the center of your camp, knowing that he could instantly destroy you with fire, that he had done so to people in the past. That you'd seen it with your own eyes. That He was so strong and majestic that He could part an entire sea so that you could walk through it. This same God is living in the center of your camp. Uncontrolled, but merciful. The people were to offer daily sacrifices to Yahweh at the tabernacle. And the stench of death hung around the center of the camp because of the uncleanness of the people. Do you think they ever forgot why the stench of death was there? Do you think they ever forgot that it was because of their sin, because of their impurity, that was the reason there was was bleeding and screaming sheep in the center of, of the camp? No. Yahweh cared intensely about holiness. When a man would bring an offering to the Lord, the man would lay his hand upon the animal's head, symbolizing that he, his sins were being transferred symbolically to this animal's head. And then the man would take the animal and he would slit the animal's throat, letting all of the blood drain out. The priest would gather some of the blood in a, in a, in a basin and he would throw it against the altar. And then the man... Would cut the beast into pieces and he would put it on the altar and it would be burnt. At the end of the day, the person is covered in blood, reminding themselves over and over, Why is this happening? This actually should be me being cut into pieces and thrown on an altar. But here, God, in his mercy, is allowing me to have life. This animal is here standing in my stead. Every day the sounds of this kind of slaughter would echo through the tents of the people, reminding them that they should they should be the ones being slaughtered, not the animals. But Yahweh is merciful. It should make us think about our own sin, don't you think? I mean, all of us were sitting here thinking, that's really a gruesome thing to talk about at Christmas, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, you can say yes. Yeah. Why are we talking about it at Christmas? Because it means it it gives meaning to Christmas. Without this, Christmas is nothing. Christmas is Santa Claus and elves. Christmas is silver bells and Bing Crosby. Without this, Christmas is nothing but cultural. This is what Christmas is about. We look here at this text. We ought to be reminded of our own sin. We have to be reminded of who we are. Do you remember what John said about Jesus when he he saw him? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus became our spotless Lamb. He willingly followed us, follow me, he willingly followed us to the tabernacle and allowed us, each of us, to slit his throat and let the blood drain out. That's what Jesus did for us. It was your sin, it was my sin that was placed upon his head. It was your hand, it was my hand that slit his throat that allows the life to leave. So I ought to make us think twice about the sin in our life. The temptation to gossip killed Jesus. The lust in your heart killed Jesus. The desire for fame and pride killed Jesus. Too often we rationalize our sin thinking that sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes it's okay. So when you think about your sin, you think about the things that, that you are continually struggling with, the things that are your, it's a continual battle for you to fight against this kind of temptation and this kind of sin. Which sins in your life do you think Are worth killing Jesus for. Hopefully all of us would say none of them. But how many of us would be betrayed. By our actions. Do you ever think of the trembling body. Of Christ on the cross. When you're contemplating. This sin. You're thinking about making this decision that you know stands against Scripture, stands against what God has said. Do you ever think about the trembling body of our Lord Jesus Christ dying there on the cross for you? God mercifully allowed the people of Israel to make sacrifices so that they could be reminded of how much they needed Him. Even though Yahweh was living in a tent among them, they didn't see him. They saw his presence, but they never actually saw him. They they weren't able to speak to him. They weren't able to sit down and have a conversation with him. They weren't able to to do anything like that. They they saw his glory. And what happened? They were fearful. They were scared to death. In fact, you remember what what they said to Moses in Exodus chapter 20. They're there at, at Mount Sinai. And it says, now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking and the people were afraid. And trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Say, look at the mountain, they're scared to death. And even though Yahweh loved his people there was this intense feeling of anxiety from living close to Him. The fall of Adam and Eve that we talked about last week has wrecked our relationship with God. It's caused us to be in such a place where we're, we're alienated from Him. We're distanced from Him. And, and no longer can we experience the joy of a relationship with Him. Here in the Old Testament, God dwelled among His people but it was just a whisper of the kind of relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. How could God live among his people and give them rest? How could he deal with their sin once and for all? That's what we find here in John 1. Look what he says in verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, who is this word? We come to this text. We have to ask that question. Who is the word? Well, the word logos refers to Jesus. But look at what John says about this word. Look at the beginning of the prologue that we read just a little bit ago. Verse one down to verse three. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So John begins his gospel with the same words that began the Old Testament in the beginning. Why does he do this? Because he sees this as being as significant as the beginning of creation. John says, something brand new is happening here. This isn't just some, the, some birth narrative about a king. This isn't just another prophet that's coming on the scene. He's saying, this person, this one, is going to be the beginning of a new humanity. In the beginning, the word. John is pointing to the reality of new creation that we find in Christ. You remember that promise that God made to Eve? That there would be one who would come after, that would crush the head of the serpent. Restore the world. Well, the birth of Jesus is defining that point in all of human history. Not only is Jesus coming to restore the brokenness of creation by recreating, but He is the eternal, divine Word of God. What does that mean? He's the voice of God that spoke the universe into existence. He it says He was He was with God in the beginning. He was God in the beginning. It was Jesus that called all things into reality. It was Jesus that, through His voice, hung the stars into space. It was Jesus that caused the mountains to shoot forth from the seas. Nothing, it says, was made outside the power and work of Jesus. He is the Word, the message of the Lord. He's the self-revelation of God. Now think about this. This is the same voice. That uttered the world into existence. It's the same voice that proclaimed the destruction of the dragon... There in Genesis chapter 3. It's the same voice that promised to Abraham. That through him would come a great nation. And that through him all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's the same voice that caused the foundation of Mount Sinai. To quake and breathed out lightning and thunder. As God established his covenant with his people. It's the same voice that that, that spoke to King David. Promising him that there would be a king forever on his throne. It's the same voice That announced the coming of Messiah through the prophets. As the scripture says, long ago, and in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. It's the same voice. It's the same self-revelation of God. The same word became flesh. We have to be very careful to understand the words correctly because it's so important. John did not say that the Word assumed flesh. He didn't say that the Word adopted the form of a body. He's saying that the Word of God became human, never to be inhuman again. So Jesus hasn't taken off his flesh. Jesus is a man. He will always be a man. Eternally, He will be the God-man. He will never change. He became flesh. He didn't simply take up a body like some sort of divine possession. He didn't assume a body previously used by someone else. He descended, He Himself, the Word of God, into the womb of this Middle Eastern teenager. In Exodus, Moses hears the the divine name of God spoken by God himself. Then afterwards, God gives to him these tablets of stone that have the law on them. Yahweh would speak to Moses at the tent of meeting as a man speaks with his friend. And now John tells us that the word of God his self-expression, that one that could not be seen, that one had never been seen, the one that that Moses saw the back of, but he couldn't see the front of, this God became flesh. This is what we call the incarnation. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. Leo, the great, from Rome, He's remembered... Because of the things he said at the council at Chalcedon. In 451, Leo argued about the incarnation. The very thing that we believe as orthodoxy. This is what he said. He said that that Jesus maintained the distinctness of both natures and substances. Both met in one person. Lowliness was assumed by majesty. Weakness by power, mortality by eternity, and in order to pay the debt of our condition, the indestructible nature was united to the frail nature, so that the appropriate remedy for our ills, one and the same, mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, might from one element be capable of dying and not dying. God became flesh To die for your sins. That's the only way that you can be saved. He became flesh to rescue all of us from the reign of death. Leo goes on and he says, The invisible made himself visible. The one who we couldn't see, he made himself so that we could see him. And the creator and the Lord of all things will be to willed to be one among mortals. He was stooping down in compassion, not in a failure of power. So when you look at Jesus, you're not looking at someone who has limited himself in such a way that it makes him not God. God became like you so that He could save you. In order for Him to be completely, to completely do away with our sin, to become our substitute. He had to become one of us. You remember what Paul said in Philippians 2. He says, Jesus, though he was God, did not count his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. But he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by dying. Even a death on a cross. So Christ became flesh. He's both God and man. There is no, there's no mixture of the natures. Yet there is unity in the one person. And he's fully God and he's fully man. And it's important that we, we have to make those distinctions. Because as we've already seen. God is the only one who can fix our brokenness. Can you fix your problems? Can you make yourself presentable enough so that God will be okay and let you into heaven? No, you cannot. I cannot. Only God can fix the shattered nature that we have. Only God can restore this world to himself. Only God can defeat the power of Satan and and defeat death. Only God can cleanse us from our sins. Therefore, Christ must fully be God if we're going to have a salvation. But Christ is also fully human. He can only be our substitute. He can only stand in your place if he's fully human. Therefore, he, he can't just be a God who, who clothes himself in flesh as though it were a jacket. He's really God on the inside, but on the outside, he just looks like a man. That's not a substitute for you. He has the mind of a man. He has the body of a man. He is fully human. Because that is true, he can stand in the place for all of us. He's both God God. And man. now, we look at that first phrase, the word became flesh." Look at the second one, just as important. And he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. Now the reason that this is significant is because of the word that John chooses to use. If you were a, a person very familiar with the Greek Old Testament at this time, you would have immediately been reminded of what he's actually saying here the word dwell or to dwell literally translated means the word set up his tabernacle he began tabernacling among us he 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 lived in his tent with us that's what he said it should remind them of what the old testament said in exodus chapter 25 let them make a sanctuary that i may tabernacle that i may dwell in their midst so this, the bright cloud of God's glory has descended upon earth again. But this time, it's not a tent. It's not in a building. It's not in a temple. This time, it is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ, the majesty and the glory of God became flesh and lived among His people. In Jesus, they could touch God. They could see Him. They could laugh with Him. They could kiss Him. They could feel His weight. They could be with Him. Notice what John says next in verse 14. He says, we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when the people looked at Jesus, they looked at God. They saw the glory of God. When Mary and Joseph looked at their baby wrapped up in swaddling swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, they they were looking at the face of Yahweh. When the shepherds came running to the village in Bethlehem and found baby Jesus, that dirty, awful, stinky stable had been transformed into the Holy of Holies because Yahweh was there. In Christ, the personality of God is on full display. And now John describes Jesus. He says he is full of grace and truth. John's connecting to what we already know about Yahweh to Jesus. You remember back to Exodus chapter 33. Moses stood before Yahweh and and, and says, he said, please show me your glory. This is what the Lord says. I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God's glory is His goodness. So when Moses stood on Mount Sinai and we're told that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, these are the things that the Lord said the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, giving iniquity forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The two words, love and faithfulness, spell out God's goodness. The word love describes God's compassion, His covenantal love. A love that we cannot earn, but that he gives to us freely by his own grace. The other word, faithfulness, is summed up in the word truth. In Christ, both of these, his grace, his mercy, and his truth, his trustworthiness, his faithfulness, all of it is summed up in this Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. He says, for from His fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. So the same glory that Moses saw on Mount Sinai is the same glory that the rest of the disciples saw when they looked at Jesus. The Word made flesh. And Jesus, God, lavishes His grace upon us. John's words give us a picture of grace being stacked upon grace. In Jesus, there is grace to be had. And it's an abundance of grace. He never never runs out. It's as if there's an ocean of God's grace and He's lifted up the dam and it's just flowing over top of us. It never ends. God has grace upon grace to give. The law was given through Moses. But it doesn't compare to the love and the faithfulness of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ. This morning, when you think about the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, you think about Christmas, you think about just in a few days, we celebrate the birth of Christ, gather around with families, we begin to sing songs and to give gifts. What is your Christmas about? Is it about the one made flesh? Or is it about you? Is it about the things that you want or the things that make you happiest? Is it about your family? Is it about getting together and having lots of food or is it about Christ? What is your Christmas about? When you think about Jesus at this time of year, don't think of him just as a baby wrapped in silly little clothes. Think about him as a majestic king. The one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. The one who who reigns over all things. The one who is God made man. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never, never seen the grace of God in your life. You think about this text. You think about what Christmas is all about. Jesus actually came to die for you so that you could have life. I plead with you. Be reconciled with God. Don't let this Christmas go by you as though it's just another time of the year where we come to church more often than we normally do, where we sing songs that are more about God than normal. We sing and we hear things that that make us feel a little touch of emotion about our childhood. Don't let your Christmas be that, but instead, focus on what God has done for you. Trust in Christ. One day, all of us, unless the Lord returns, will die in a land of exile, just like the bishop. But if we entrust ourselves to God, like Nestorius, we can live forever. Father, I pray that you would be gracious to us this morning. That we would see Jesus more clearly. Father, I pray that these doctrines would not be dull to us. That is, if we've walked through what it means for Jesus to be both God and man, that we would not distance ourselves, not from the rigor of thinking about it, but from the mystery and the imagination of what you've done in Christ. God, capture our hearts. Let us not drift away right now into things that are happening in the coming week that is very busy. Lord, let us take this time right now as we respond, that we would, we would be people who, who trust in Christ, who believe in the name of our Lord Jesus, not just intellectually agreeing that he existed or that he did certain things, but Lord, that he did them for us. Change our hearts. Lord, change our hearts when it comes to sin that we would not be people who, who simply go on doing the things that we know are sin. But Lord, I pray that we would re- repent, that we would be changed, that we would see that, that, that lamb being slaughtered for the very things that we're doing, that that would change our hearts. It would cause us to repent and believe and trust in the gospel again. God, teach us what Christmas is all about this morning. That it's not about all the things that we've gathered around us. That it's about, it's about you. It's about the cross. It's not just about the manger. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name.